George, for that introduction and, and reading of the passage. Yeah, so um, I'm excited to be here this evening with everyone. I haven't gotten to do any of the teaching in Ecclesiastes. Um, like George said, I come in from time to time. George and Lawrence do a great job, but um, I'm thankful for the times I can come up. So, and I think next week is our last week in Ecclesiastes, and then uh, we'll be rounding a corner. Okay, no, next week is, forget that, because next, okay, I'm just going to jump in. Next week is the prayer time, right? One more week, then the prayer time. Okay, that does make sense. Sorry. You just ever stand in front of people and then be like, wait, I can't keep track of the details here. Um, so almost end of Ecclesiastes. If you're just joining for the first time or you have been here off and on, um, the author of Ecclesiastes is self-identified right at the start. So he calls himself um, the preacher, could also be translated teacher, and he says that he's the king of Israel, uh, the son of David. That's why Solomon is historically, traditionally given credit as authorship of Ecclesiastes. And then right in that beginning part, this preacher-teacher king over Israel is burdened that Everything under the sun is just a vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind. And in those first two chapters, he really discusses and looks at the different things he pursued to like just try to figure out life and make sense of it. So he tries wisdom. He tries pleasure, specifically how to cheer his body with wine. He tries laughter, the arts and entertainment. I think it says like he hires musicians and singers. Um, then he moves on to accomplishments, gardens, successes, materialism. I think it says he has silver and gold and the treasures of king. But after working through all these things, what he discovers is that all of this is meaningless too. And so he concludes at the end of chapter 2 that what makes sense is to eat and drink and enjoy one's life before God. And that's actually a repeated theme throughout the rest of the book. In fact, in the remaining like 10 chapters, he'll repeat almost that same line verbatim seven more times. Um, so that kind of brings us up to today's passage. So right today... The preacher-teacher is extolling his audience to live for the day. It says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do, which is just an ancient way of saying, like, live for today. Is everything okay over there? <laughs> I don't know where Tim went or any technical person. Any technical person here? Okay, Kenny, does that look okay? Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Back to living for the day, no matter what's going on behind you with the tech crew stuff. <laughs> um, and then he says, write this part about God's approval, which is just really saying that there's no sin in rejoicing. It's even like saying, like, God wants us to enjoy the happiness we can enjoy today. And that term happiness, I think I might just... Last week it came up. I think it's good to define it. Um, when I say happiness, I'm not using like the modern term, like a feeling, a state of euphoria that's kind of passing. I'm using the biblical term, right? The Hebrew term that really means a state of blessing, of being fortunate, of being well off. 
And then, the, oh, and I think last week somebody might have even used the synonym joy, which is also in the text today. That seems like a good modern synonym, joy. But then interestingly, like the text goes on to connect this idea of living vibrantly, of rejoicing before the face of God with how you dress and what beauty products you use. Um, right? It says, let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. It's a picture of vibrant living that includes the physical care of yourself, even your physical appearance. The text is connecting physical care with spirituality and rejoicing and acknowledging God. And I think there's a temptation in any religion, but certainly it's been historically in Christianity to like over-spiritualize life and separate the physical from the spiritual and make them different boxes and then also deem the physical as less than. You're not quite as mature if you're just dealing in the physical. You're not quite as holy if you're just dealing in the physical, that the spiritual is the one that we elevate. And the physical, if you're there, that's, you're not really quite as mature. Um, it's this evaluation even that um, the physical body is evil or sinful. And that certainly happened during the Apostle Paul's time, right? So that's why he wrote at the end of Colossians, not to put your hope in asceticism, right? Asceticism being the harsh treatment of your body to like attain some spiritual state or for religious purposes. Whenever I think of that term um, asceticism, my mind always goes to the Da Vinci Code, which is a little bit old. I'm going to guess it was probably in the 90s, which feels like 10 years ago to me, but maybe it was 30 years ago. <laughs> but in that opening scene of the Da Vinci Code, there's a monk who has strapped a knife or a dagger to the inside of his thigh so that every time he moves, he'll feel that knife piercing and cutting his flesh, his body, and it'll be a reminder to him that he needs to subdue the physical body, that the body is evil, and that he needs to subdue it in order to really get to the spiritual. And Paul was saying, like, don't put your hope in that. And here... Thousands of years before Paul, we have the same exhortation to care for one's physical appearance, to care for your physical self, and to attach that to spirituality, to attach that to a life lived before God. Right? It's an exhortation. Don't divorce the two. Connect them. And maybe even that part of abiding in God and receiving from him this happy, blessed life is to take care of your physical self. Um, when I was preparing this and just reading through it again and again to try to make sense of it, the questions that popped in my mind were like, okay, this seems like kind of a weird teaching. <laughs> like my, and, and then getting ready for tonight, like, okay, I'm going to think about what I wear with God, like that, or what I put in my hair, like, seems kind of weird. I don't know that I regularly do that. <laughs> and then, like, this other part of me was like, 
But then if I do that, is that going to be restrictive? Like I got a little fearful, like, oh, I don't know if I like that. And then I kind of went back the other way, like, well, does God really care, you know, what I wear or what I'm putting in my product or what makeup I put on my face or whether I'm wearing earrings that might clang on the microphone? <laughs> um, and, and also I think, you know, just society today is... Um, is always submitting to us, especially there's a lot of social constructivism, like what we wear really comes from society, right? So let's, let's just get rid of all that and let's have our boys wear pink and our girls wear blue. Like that just comes from society. So let's just get away with that anyway. So I noticed as I was just kind of reading through this and wrestling with like, this is an odd teaching. Um, I noticed that this passage comes after a discussion on death and how death is a natural phenomenon and it's also evil. I think Lawrence preached on that in July, just like the evilness of death, that death is evil. And this text even is transitional. So it's actually looking back, like chapter 7, chapter 9, on this idea that death is evil but necessary, but then it also looks ahead, like the very next verses are talking about how, um, like the senselessness of life, and just because you have wisdom or certain attributes doesn't necessarily mean you'll have successes, like, and who knows when the evil net will snare any of us. So it's looking back to death, it's looking forward to death, and this idea of senselessness. You know, I just kept thinking, why would the author conclude after facing the certainty of death and naming it as an evil that we should take care of our physical appearance? Like, it would seem to me if we're saying, I'm going to die, like, who cares if I brush my teeth or not? <laughs> like, if I'm going to die, like, just do whatever you want. But instead, he's saying maybe deal and face with the mourning and the grief and the sadness and the hard reality and sadness of death and take care of your physical appearance. And I wonder if maybe we don't attach the care of our physical self to like this full and abundant, vibrant life and to God because we don't like to face the hard stuff. You know, maybe there's some connection between taking care of our physical self and our appearance and dealing with the hard, the senselessness of life, death, all those different things. You know, it's, you know, not letting the negative of this world, like if you don't look at it, it just kind of comes out sideways then. And maybe it comes out in our appearance and how we take care of our physical self. Um, if you're familiar with attachment theory, which gets a lot of press ink in the professional psychological world, but I think also in self-help mainstream books as well. So, right, if we've had trauma, especially in those early years, like from newborn to preschool, if for whatever reason our main caregiver couldn't form good attachments with us, um, and sometimes our caregivers are going through trauma and, and they can't, you know, because there's stuff they're dealing with. It happens and 
And what research has found is that um, we may develop insecure attachments. So like we might have anxious attachments because we're not feeling secure and validated. We're looking to others to validate us. So what the research has found, so in those early formative developmental years, if they're not there, if the secure attachment doesn't happen, it can impact um, our behaviors later on. Not that it's a death sentence, like, right? You can bring it to your consciousness and work on it. But what attachment theory says is that it can affect future relationships um, and that we can use our physical appearance to get attention. So one attachment style workbook I read literally said, a person with insecure, anxious attachment often struggles to see their own positive points. They're highly critical of themselves because they believe they are not worthy. Because of their low self-esteem and view that they don't matter, they may end up behaving in a way that gets them positive attention so that they feel validated by others. It's for this reason that they need to be constantly reassured that they are worthy because they don't believe it about themselves, so they seek evidence from others, and this might look like wearing skimpy clothing. So even modern psychology is saying there is a connection to whether we face the hard stuff in our life and our physical appearance and what we choose to wear or how we choose to take care of ourselves. Of course, the behavior doesn't have to be just wearing skimpy clothing that connect to an overfocus on physical appearance for validation, right? There could be other fear-based behaviors um, that still overfocus on the physical body for validation. The term health freak <laughs> comes to my mind, right? Like there could be perfectionistic, fear-based behaviors to overemphasize health and physical care. That's not to enjoy life vibrantly and to seek God in having happiness, but it's from this place of insecurity. So the behaviors can vary. Of course, we could also go the other way back to that idea of asceticism, the harsh treatment of our physical bodies for religious or spiritual purposes. Um, we can over-spiritualize life to the point that we neglect the physical care of ourself. This can also happen due to trauma, right? If we have been physically or sexually abused, we often can want to avoid any care of our physical body. And that behaviors can look like neglecting care of our physical self, neglecting personal hygiene. It may look like because the physical body was abused, like I, I just want to avoid any acknowledgement of my physical body wearing extremely baggy clothes. It could also look like overeating. It could look like starving yourself. It could look like cutting or self-harm, right? It's this harsh treatment of our physical bodies. A lot of times when I'm counseling people, I'll submit to them that really to be fully human is to acknowledge that we have different parts. So like, um, I mean, different theorists will put it different ways, but I think a good solid core idea is that to be human means we really have four core domains, right? Like to be human, you have to have a physical body. There's a biological part. 
To be human also means we have psychological domain, our thoughts, our feelings, our motivations, our desires. To be human also means we have an ethical part, um, a sense of right and wrong. It's attached to the social part, right? Like societies might change what is right or wrong, but when societies come together, they always have an ethical right and wrong idea. And then, of course, the spiritual part. And really, to be fully human and experiencing all of ourself before the face of God is to learn to integrate all those parts together. The spiritual certainly is the highest, right? Because that's where we really interact with God the most. But the spiritual is also dependent on the other parts. Like, you don't get a spirit if you don't have a physical body. So all those parts need to be integrated together. Authentic or genuine self-actualization needs to include the caring of our physical self, our physical body, as well as spiritual care. So what does that look like to like be authentic and aw be aware of physical and spiritual and care for both together? How do we look at hard things in life and not be anxious and need others to validate us? How do we look at hard things and not like avoid it and push it down and try to deny things? How do we really care for ourselves and bring that to God to experience this happiness that the text is saying he approves on, this rejoicing, this abundant life that he's saying, that's what I want for humans, for my children who I created. Well, this isn't the only place where the Bible talks about white garments and oil for our head. So if we do like just a quick review, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus taking three of his closest friends, right, up to a mountain, and they see Jesus literally transfigured before their eyes, and he has shining appearance, and he's wearing white garments. Two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, record after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' body isn't in the tomb, but an angel is, wearing white garments. And then Revelations, the last book of the Bible, has several referrals to white clothing. In the beginning, it talks about, it's addressing different churches. There's a church in Sardis, and they're told that the one who remains alive, meaning repentant in this life, will be given white clothing, and God will take away their soiled, dirty garments. In the chapter 6, it says those who were martyred for their faith are given white robes to wear. In Revelation 7, um, a multitude of people from all tribes and nations and languages are standing before the throne of God wearing white clothing. And then there's also biblical references to having oil poured out on your head, right? So, like, my hair is kind of thin, and I really don't need oil, but if you, um, especially um, Middle Eastern, Asian, African, right, you care for your hair by putting oil in your hair, if you have thicker, curlier hair. Um, and so Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. Song of Solomon, which um, Solomon also um, authored, which is a, a book mostly about <laughs> literally physical topics about the love between a man and a woman, husband and wife, says your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out. 
Then Ezekiel, uh, one of the last prophets to Israel, rebuking them before they get um, conquered by a foreign nation. God is saying to his people, then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Um, and then in the New Testament, we see oil being used for medicinal purposes. So Mark records that the disciples went out and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then in James, um, the half-brother of Jesus, admonishing the early church, says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. When you look at all those... I hope you're wondering, I was wondering, like, well, what is literal and what is a metaphor? What is a symbol? What is, what is physical and what is spiritual in those texts? And I would ask, like, can it be both? Can it be both spiritual and physical? Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and I would say early Christian psychologist, worked with people to gain a sense of what it means to be like fully human before the face of God. And he observed that there are fundamental incongruities to being human, right? Like we have finite parts and we have infinite parts. We have temporal parts and we have eternal parts. We have freedoms, but we have obligations. And Kierkegaard submitted that the task of human selfhood is not to minimize one part over the other. It's, learn, it's learning to synthesize those incongruencies. Kierkegaard also observed that God has placed eternity in the human heart. He's created us in such a way that we cannot find our ultimate happiness apart from God. So, and not only do we have these incongruities, we also have conflicting desires, right? Like we were created by God to experience happiness, but we can't fully experience happiness apart from him. But often it's God who we do not wish to face fully or to face our need for him fully. So often, again, when I'm meeting with people and counseling them, I hear, repeat it, I just don't want to have to need God. But as humans, like, we don't need God because we sin. We need God because that's what we were created for. We were created to need him and depend on him and trust him. Yet so often, like, that's what we don't want to fully face. God has planted in us this desire for happiness, but we can't fully realize it without him. And really, Christ is the solution to this problem of finding true human selfhood and existence as whole persons. Right? Christ, uh, fully God, took on human flesh. He fully synthesized the physical and the spiritual together. Um, Colossians 2.9 and Philippians 2 are great places to read and meditate and think about that more. Jesus experienced all of the human condition, even the brokenness and the incongruencies, yet without sin or fault. He always lived before the face of God. During that transfiguration, the disciples saw Jesus 
how God the Father always sees Jesus, dazzling and beautiful and dressed in white. On the cross, right, Jesus took our soiled garments, our grime, our brokenness, and in exchange, he took that so that we could take on his appearance, his white garments, his identity. And that is both spiritual and physical. The text says God has already approved of what we do. And in some sense, that's true, right? Like God wants, he created us, and he wants us to rejoice in today as much as we can and to live vibrantly and to live abundantly. But yet that's not fully true. Like there's also a redemptive part that we can more fully be approved by God when we have faith in Jesus Christ because he will remove those parts that we've absorbed, um, you know, from just living in this broken, fallen world, the dirt, the grime, the guilt, the shame, also the things that we've chosen to do volitionally. He removes that, and we experience, we have that foundational approval by God just by being created in God's image and being human, but then we have that even infinitely more in Christ, right? It's a It's that already and not yet idea of the gospel. We're already beautiful, but we look forward to the day when we'll be fully beautiful. We're already feasting now, right? It says, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Like we do that today, but we look forward to the day in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns, when when we will more fully feast We could also ask and wonder, like, you know, why, why should I wear white? Why should I dress nice? Why should I take care of myself when things in this world are not nice and are not great? Everything is not okay in this world. But we dress and we live to rejoice in today because of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, because of Jesus, everything is okay and everything will be okay. Like there's an aspect to living one's life before God today that is expressed. Like when I live today rejoicing and taking care of my physical self to live abundantly and vibrantly, it's an expression of my faith that one day, I'm going to even more fully live vibrantly and abundantly. Like I'm choosing to do this now and experience this now with God because I know one day it's going to be even more. And that affects me in the today and now. So I think it's good to end with just like a practical, okay, what do I do with this information? Like, okay, great. So what? What do I do with it? I mean, certainly we have to understand that innate, immense value to God, the value we have thanks to Christ's redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. But then also, like, we got to come to him, and we've got to form convictions on our physical appearance and taking care of our physical self to experience the full happiness with him. Like, it'd be kind of silly to be like, yeah, we're just going to talk about this stuff about God, but you never go to him yourself <laughs> and form these convictions. Like, I don't know, maybe go to him and talk about these ideas with him. 
because of his love, because of Christ, um, which Romans 14, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 18, talks about, right? Paul is telling the early believers there over debatable matters, gray areas, like are you going to eat food, sacrifice to idols? What day of the week are you going to consider every day of the week as more holy? And Paul is saying, like, whatever you do, yes, take others into consideration how you live those out, but whatever you do, do out of faith. And don't judge your brother because your brother doesn't answer to you. Your brother answers to God. And he says, for, every, for whatever is not done out of faith is sin. Not like, oh, this is wrong, this is sin. But right, like, when we don't live out of faith, that's a sign of our broken and sinfulness. Like, learning to move away from that because of faith in Jesus Christ and his redemption and learning that all of life can be enjoyed and vibrant and abundant um, out of faith in God. So connecting that physical care and appearance to the spiritual realm to worship God, to experience and receive and interact with him, to have, right, he is our happiness, he is our blessing, and the more we interact with him, even in how we dress and take care of our physical self, the more abundant and 